and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keyes. And I'm TJ West. And we are talking today about Season 3, Episode, I believe, 19, No Accounting for Murder, a Grady episode. TJ, tell us- It is a Grady episode. It's a very Grady, I was going to say Christmas, but it's it's not Christmas time. No, but it is a very Grady episode. It is very much cut in the mold of most other Grady episodes in the sense that Jessica is going to visit Grady. He's working for an accounting firm. He gets framed for murder because one of the partners at this place ends up dead. So Jessica has to figure out who's responsible. And there's also randomly a person living in the hallways or the sort of in the walls of this office building. Yeah, that's the weirdest side plot, isn't it? Which we need to clearly need to talk about that more than a little bit because it is truly a bizarre B plot, even within Murder She Wrote world. Yeah. So, as it turns out, of course, Grady has been set up this whole thing. He's been framed. It was one of the other partners who had done it and wanted Grady to take responsibility. And then we have a tussle where someone literally almost tries to like choke Jessica to death. And then she's saved by the hermit in the walls. So. <laughs> It's quite an adventuresome episode. <laughs> we put it like that, it's pieces. a really weird episode. <laughs> it is. I mean, the, the person in the wall alone would make this a very strange episode, um, mm-hmm. from my point of view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Like, in terms of Grady episodes, it's pretty bread and butter, right? Grady gets a new job every time we see him. This guy cannot hold down employment, I'm telling you what. Well, it's not really his fault. It's like he just always gets hired at places that have murders. So he has to find new jobs a lot. Well, right. I mean, you know, one should always do one's research to see what the propensity of murder might be in a given employment. I mean, in the, I think the thing that makes this like an extra grady episode is that not only is he um, accused of the murder, but he has been systematically set up mm-hmm. by one of the partners at this accounting firm to be committing tax fraud. Yep. And have offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands. And he is so stupid that he tells Jessica at some point, like, oh, yeah, I went to the Cayman Islands a couple of times on business. <laughs> and has no idea that that might be remotely shady. I mean, not that I, I don't want to say that Grady deserves to be set up for murder, but it is definitely true that he is one of the most credulous people <laughs> on the planet. More like, than you. I know, right. Well, the, exactly. I'm one of the, I too am one of the most naive and credulous people on the planet, but Grady Fletcher is like a walking target for being set up for any How number of crimes. How is so dumb? I don't understand. Jessica is so intelligent and thoughtful, and we know that he spent time, like, living with her after his parents died. Like, how could he have turned out so stupid? I do not know. And I mean, I give a lot of cre- I give a lot of credit to Michael Horton for, you know, for capturing the himbo aesthetic. Like he just is the perfect kind of himbo. And do you think that's what he he is supposed he's supposed to be like attractive to make up for the fact that he's dumb? Yeah, of course. Like I mean, no, I, obviously I guess I never really thought of him as attractive. I mean, he is in that sort of, you know, boy next door, wide-eyed, mm-hmm. sort of innocent I mean, mm-hmm. now that I think about it, I have never actually really thought of Grady as a himbo, but now I, that's my new thing. Grady as himbo. Like, that's well, now the, that, I'm just thinking of him as a Ken doll. Yeah, right. You know, to, in th- you know, referencing, of course, the new Barbie movie. But you're right. I mean, so now there's, there's another essay in this cottage industry that we're developing of Murder, <laughs> She Wrote Essays. Like, Are you going to be on that again this episode? Of course. That's my new thing. <sighs> it's taking the place of Grace Note. Okay. 
well, we need to write these essays down. What we should do is write all the titles you come up with down. And we should farm out the actual work of writing them and put together a Murdershiro newsletter or something. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right. We should. These lovely listeners can help us write these essays. Yeah, I like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> a true cottage industry, as it were. Um, okay, so so we mentioned the plot about the tax fraud and the one partner killing the other um, because he found out about it. Which I have to tell you, TJ, it seemed really dim obvious from the beginning. It sure did. I was pretty like, okay, this seems like too good to be true. Yeah. I mean, the police are investigating around and I'm like, I don't understand why you're not investigating his partner. The logical thing is that his partner killed him. And I didn't feel that way because I'd seen the episode 900 times. I was like, I I just think it's on the one hand, I like when the resolution feels very logical in this show, mm-hmm. because sometimes they do whack-ass things in the resolution that you're like, what? How did that did make sense? Yeah. yeah. So I like that it was logical, but because it was so obvious, I did not understand why it took us an hour to figure out it was him. Right. Well, we got to, you know, the reason we have the whole hour is so we can figure out, you know, the person living in the walls and we get more before he's more like you know we, there's all we got Dorothy Lamore like we have all the pieces that you know that we have to explore before we get to the actual murder being solved yeah well so let's maybe talk about the ghost in the wall they, they call do him call the him ghost because one of the things when the body is discovered is there's you know red paint on the wall sort of announce you know warning people away from this building and so as it turns out there's just kind of this and and we know that there really is right. somebody because we get lots of point of view shots from that person, like looking through right. air vents and grates and things. So it's not just like they've invented a ghost. Like there is something right. Which, there. I mean, those shots are really interesting just because they seem so like mm-hmm. quasi horror, like, you know, because of course horror often yeah. plays with points of view shots. And it's also just, you know, builds the suspense of who is this person. And of course it's too obvious that they would be the ones responsible for the murder. So we know that it's not them, but we also fi- need to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is it a regular thing that people just chill out in the walls of live inside walls? Like I, I, I was trying to figure out like why <laughs> does it I mean is this supposed to be somewhat whimsical? Like, I mean, I don't know. I'm a small kid. For, I'm a small town kid from West Virginia. I grew up in the country. Like, is it a common thing? <laughs> and, is it a common thing in cities for people to be living inside walls? Like, is it just something that, I mean, you're the big city girl here. Like, what, is this chime with any of your yeah, experience? I've, I've, as, the, as the big city girl trademark uh, of our dynamic duo, I can say that I've definitely encountered lots of people living inside of walls and high rises before. No, I mean, so, so the explanation that the episode gives is that the building has been renovated a lot over the years because it's a very old building. And so every time that it's renovated you know, the the footprint sort of changes. And so there's all these little sort of rabbit warrens between walls and in hidden corridors and things that would make for great hiding places. And um, so this is an unhoused person, or as you would say in the 1980s, a homeless person who realized that this would be a great place to live because now they're off the street and it's warm and it's clean and dry. And so they've just been hanging out there Um and they're not doing what we find in the end is like they're actually not doing anything bad. They're just living there, right? Right. So Jessica's like, I don't really see any reason why we need to kick this person out. Like this is their home. Yeah, I mean, to be and also to be fair, he's the one who ends up saving Jessica at the end of the episode when she confronts the murderer, and then he, you know, while he's literally chasing her around the office, like trying to, you know, kill her, he gets 
assaulted and then hogtied by this by person the ghost. in the walls. Yeah. And I think that's actually really necessary, right? Because um, we need to, we need to not, how do I say this, like, without like offending people, but I think like, the good, the good, you know, Joe popcorn America viewing public needs to not be afraid of this homeless person, mm. right? And so by having him commit this heroic act, it sort of signifies to us, like, you don't have to be scared of him just because he lives differently from you, right? Which I think we've seen in other right. episodes with, like, vagrants and just, you know, people who sort of live outside of, like, social norms. Right. I mean, that is kind of a subversion of expectation. I mean, you know, this is the 80s where, you know, it's Reagan's America, welfare queens, all that kind of anti-poor rhetoric right. is pretty ubiquitous. So it is, you know, in Morgan Roth's own way it's you know a means of you know sort of working against that dominant cultural understanding of what quote-unquote homeless people are like and also you know as we've talked about before like subverting the expectations of what big city life is like which all that sort of stuff sort of ties together yeah i mean because you think like you're gonna encounter the homeless in new york right that was always the thing in the 80s New York is the streets of Manhattan are so full of homeless people and it's gross and scary and they're weird. And some of them have mental mm-hmm. illness. And so you, you don't know if you can trust them or talk to them. Something bad might happen. And here we're given like, no, right. it's just a dude who just needs a place to live. And in fact, he saves Jessica's life. Although he does steal the cop's hat at the end, which the cop is not happy about. He does. And he also, and he also steals Grady's sandwich earlier in the episode. Well, he was hungry. Sure. I mean, he's been collecting things. I mean, there's something quaint about this storyline. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I can think of worse places to live than an office building in New York City, you know, that's unoccupied. I mean, that's right. That has parts of it that are not occupied or that, you know, has these places in the walls where you could just kind of chill out. I know. I wonder if that could work today or if security systems would be too sophisticated. Like, Mm-hmm. Like the cameras maybe wouldn't pick you up because you'd be like inside the walls. But like, if your whole point is that when everyone goes home, you want to come out and like use the bathroom or something, you know, like are there motion sensors that would catch you and stuff? I wonder if you could get away with it today. Probably not. And I'm also, I'm kind of skeptical you could have gotten away with it in the eighties. Like, I mean, you have to use the bathroom like more than I have all sorts of like body related questions. Like, Well, you could use the bathroom during the day when people are coming and going in the building and lots of different people are using the bathroom and then no one would like look twice at you. Right. Well, that's true. I guess if you had managed to procure a relatively nice set of clothes, you could masquerade. Yeah. I think the question it raised for me is the shower. But this is also the 80s. Maybe there's like executive washrooms with showers in some of these offices. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. And probably a nice couch to sleep on. Right. All kinds of legit. It's actually starting to sound better and better. I know. This is clearly my my future plan when my, you know. Yeah. Next time I want to go to New York, why would I drop $1,000 on a hotel room? I've got a great plan lined up. Maybe there's a secret part of the internet that has, you know. Like, which which New York office buildings are... Well, you know, it's funny that we say this, because one, th- one of the things about, like, all of the uh, work-from-home stuff in the wake of the pandemic has been that office buildings are now unoccupied, that there's a lot of office space that's unoccupied. True. That's true. So, just, should we, could, we could reenact this Murder, She Wrote episode and, you know, get lodging while we're in New York City. I love it. Okay, let's plan a trip to New York and let's do this. Yes, let's wander the warrens of abandoned office buildings. Um, I mean, this this can't be any different than like yeah. the van life movement, right? Like, surely there's like TikTok videos oh, sure. coaching you on 
how to hide out in a... Do you remember that book when we were kids? Like, um, Help, I'm a Prisoner in a Library or something? I would definitely be a prisoner in a library. Yeah, would, similar I thing. I would definitely take up residence there. Oh, yeah. I would love to be locked into a library overnight. That would be amazing. Or just forever. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so I guess we could talk about the guest stars, because that's always my favorite thing to talk about. So before I get to the big marquee event, I do want to talk a little bit about Barney Martin, who plays the police lieutenant, Timothy Hanratty, in his delightful Irish accent. Like, I guess they're just going with the tradition of cops being Irish in, like, the cops Northeast. Cops are somehow Irish immigrants in the 1980s in like, New York. I was like, what year is this? Like, this is a... <laughs> You know, a convention within, like, Looney Tunes cartoons from, like, the the 50s, from movies from the 30s. Like, I guess just every Irish immigrant that came to the U.S. But he, and he's not, and he's not Irish. No. Like, he's not an Irish American. He's, he's an Irish immigrant from Ireland with an Irish accent. It makes no sense to me. And, like, I mean, give, I give a lot of credit to Barney Martin to, to sort of leaning into this bit. Mm-hmm. But it's also just like, what am I even watching right now? Like, what is happening? I know. It's also just extra confusing because, of course, he goes on to play Jerry Seinfeld's dad. He sure does. Morty Seinfeld. And so I'm like, I'm so confused. Is he Jewish or Irish or is he Irish and Jewish? Like, what is happening, right? Well, the funny thing is, is Martin was actually Irish Catholic himself. Like, that's his descent. He's not actually, which, which, given how mm-hmm. convincingly he played Morty Seinfeld, like, it's really, it's one of those cases where I'm really mm-hmm. surprised and I dare say a little disappointed that he's not actually Jewish. Because I'm like, you seem Jewish. He's like Nathan Lane. A lot of people think Nathan Lane is Jewish, even though he's not. Maybe there's just something... Someone referred to, like, Italians and Jews always sort of playing the screaming cultures. No. You know, I... Oh, a Jewish comedian... We're gonna get joke, letters. I point out. I, a Jewish comedian pointed this out, that there was, like, a treaty between, like, the Jews and the Italians that they could play each other. Like, it was it was all said in good fun. But okay. I guess there must be something about Irish Catholics, too, can sort of get in on that business. Because they scream a lot? I'm just referencing the joke that someone else made, Bridget, Okay. Okay. I'm not saying right. that I okay. said that. I'm saying that someone else said that, to be clear. To be right. abundantly clear. Okay. Okay. But the thing that about Hanratty is that he has this lovely little romance with Jessica does, in this yes. episode. And it's written... You and I have been pretty skeptical of some of the romances that have been written for Jessica. But this one, I think, is just absolutely charming. Yes, my mom was just watching One, one Right Rose for Death a little bit ago. And I was like, I do not like this. Because <laughs> I don't like what's his name. Lynn Cario. Michael Haggerty. Yeah, no thanks. No gracias. But Oh, so if she's going to go Irish, this is the direction you want her to this go. This is the direction I want to go in. This, the, the Barney Martin, affable, avuncular uncle. That's the that's the direction I want to go. As opposed to the dashing, debonair Michael Haggerty, who seems yeah, like... I just don't... He's out of Cary Grant's playbook. I just... Uh, excuse me. He's not even in the same, like, cosmos as <laughs> like, They're in the complete different like universes okay. i don't know what universe you're living in but okay so he tells jessica though that like his wife died well he says something to the effect that you know she was sort of the one who helped him solve a lot of his crimes that she had a sort of perceptiveness and a you know a sharp mind that is very evocative of jessica and it's you know it's nice on two levels one because it sort of helps establish the bond between them but it's also nice seeing a man just be so open about his feelings and his love for his wife, especially like, especially mm-hmm. a policeman, especially an Irish Catholic policeman, like not exactly the most emotionally available kinds of men typically. 
Oh, we are, you are just intent to insult like every race and ethnicity and I'm, today, or I'm, nationality today. I am part Irish myself, so. Okay, listen, my family is Irish from Ireland. I mean, aren't most uh, Irish people from Ireland? No, not Americans, because Americans will say I'm Irish, right? And like they, their family has lived in the United States for like 200 years. Well, sure. But if I, you say I'm Irish in Europe, people think that means you're from Ireland. Right. So I'm just I'm cl- I'm clarifying. Like my family is literally from Ireland. Right. Like you, in you my lifetime. You have an immigrant narrative within living memory. I have an immigrant narrative. I grew up with immigrants, and uh, so my grandpa, actually, his shape and structure is not that different to this guy's, mm. and um, his and his age would have been similar. And uh, I gotta say, I'm gonna go with you on the stereotype. Like, uh, yeah, not nice, not in touch with feelings, because he wasn't raised that way, right? He was raised by like. I mean, yeah, most, most men, men aren't. aren't. And he you was also, the, I think, the, the the heavy hand of the church, you know, sort of raised them to be, like, stoic men. And anyway, there you go. So there is something very sweet and charming about how sort of open-hearted he is. And I think the way that he sort of flirts with Jessica is also, it's done, um, it's very artful. Like, I think, I think you don't like Michael Haggerty because you feel like he's, like, a little bit seedy and maybe comes on a little too strong. I also just don't like Lynn Carrier very much, so... Ugh. Anyway, by contrast, though, I think Hanratty is, like, it, he is flirting, and mm. Jessica knows he's flirting, and he knows that Jessica knows he's flirting, but he also is, like, not pushing in any way. Right. It's just all very sort of praising. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, I just think that Barney Martin is just such an appealing actor. Like, every role I've seen him in, even when he plays Moran the Cheese Man in The Golden Girls, where he's a bad guy... Ugh. Yes. Um, he's just innately, like, charming. Like, he's just so affable. Even when he's playing a villain, I can't help but like him. He also played Ranger Roy in Full House. I don't remember that. Yeah, he's the predecessor. Remember how Joey becomes, like, Ranger Joey or whatever? Ranger that... Joe. And then, he's the coolest guy I know. Yeah, his predecessor was Ranger Roy, played by Barney Martin. Hmm. These are little factoids. But anyway. And, of course, for me, though, the biggest Wait, don't go to Ron Masek episode... yet, though. Oh, you're going to go to Dorothy Lamour, aren't you? I was going to get it. Yeah, I mean, I I do love our future more. But for the moment, I was going to say the big marquee event is Dorothy Lamour, who plays Mrs. Ellis, one of Grady's sort of eccentric. She's ridiculous. And um, there's actually no sort of narrative function to her. Not at all. So it's very clear this is like, hey, do you need a part? (laughs) Here, here, do this. Yep. It's like, do you need to keep your SAG after card? Because, well, I can't. So, of course, if you don't know who Dorothy Lilmore is, she was a very famous actress in the uh, 40s and 50s in particular, playing in the road movies with um, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. And so, I mean, that's probably the most, if anyone recognizes her, that's the sort of role that she is most well known for. Do you want to know something, Teach? I've never actually seen a Bing Crosby, Bob Hope movie. Oh, they're a lot of fun. So, you know, those are, you know, from the, from the 40s in particular, like Road to Rio and Road to Utopia and, you know, this, those kinds of literally road movies where they're going to exotic locations and Dorothy Lamour is always playing, you know, sexy. So it's nice to see her. Um, it's always nice to see a classic Hollywood star, even if they're just there to sort of helicopter in, add a splash of eccentric glamour and then flit her off into whatever she's doing. Just sort of to... I think to reiterate that Grady's job sucks, yeah. right? Because she comes in and she's like, can you get me some money? And then she like dumps out a bag of receipts and is like, can you go through this? You know, which is, I think, a really, tr- um, it's a really tired trope in television about taxes. It is, yeah. 
of people just like dumping boxes of receipts. And I got to tell you, I love my tax guy. Like he's great. But the amount of labor that I put in in order for him to do his job is very exhausting. Like I would love to just come in with a grocery sack of stuff and be like, you figure it out. What am I paying you for? Right. I mean, that is, you're right. That is a trope that comes a lot in the, especially in the 80s. Like, in I noticed the 80s. That a, a lot mm-hmm. of, like, tax episodes in the 80s. Like, because the mm-hmm. Golden Girls has one. Obviously, Murder She Wrote has this. Like, do you that, remember Roseanne's tax episode? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it was it's just amazing. Like, it's just like people just carrying around receipts. And when I was younger, I was like, what are these receipts? Like, from what receipts? <laughs> I swear to God, I've been paying taxes like 30 years. I still don't even understand what are all these receipts that people are keeping. For what? what? I was like, receipts? are you talking about like grocery receipts? Like, what are we talking about here? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is there some sort of adulthood that we're missing out on? I do have that fear, though, sometimes that there's just some part. Of, that's something I've co- completely missed out on that no one told me about. But anyway, we don't need to go into my. Quite inside. likely. We don't Love. need to go into my neuroses. But given our. Well, given our. I'm just thinking, given our economic statuses collectively, there probably is a lot of stuff we're missing out on. Yeah. It was probably like, it's probably like hedge fund transfers or something, you know, right. like every time they moved money from one investment account to another and they're keeping the receipt of that. Right. That sounds like a thing people would do. And of course, as you said, we have Ron Masak, who is glorious as Marty Giles, um, who's this kind of shyster, I guess would be the, I mean, he literally is like uh-huh. the epitome of a shyster who's having a going out of business sale and has been for like the what, last three for decades. Or, years or something, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's he what, sells like shitty electronics, right? Yep, exactly. He is like the sort of quintessential huckster, you know, selling garbage, basically. And so it's just it's fun to see the flexibility of the of you know our dear friend Ron Masak. Like he's just so good in whatever role mm-hmm. he's in, and you know it's nice to see him even before you know years before he takes on the role of of our beloved Mort. Of Mort. Yeah, and I think um, you know partly that was because he had worked with um, Peter Fisher on other stuff Mm. and Peter Fisher just really respected him as an actor and loved him and thought he was great. And it's fun to give him this part because Mort, I know you're, you're like team Mort and I'm very much team Amos um, because I think Mort is actually a good sheriff. Yes. So he's not always that entertaining to watch. Right. Um, And so this, this is a really nice part because it gives him something to like sort of sink his teeth into. Like it's sort of comical. It's, he gets to be brash and, and he gets, and it's funny and, like, he's giving Jessica the runaround. She's trying to ask these questions about some tax venture that uh, seems to have something to do with the murder. You know, she doesn't know quite what. But he's one of the clients listed, and he's kind of giving her the runaround. And um, it's it's nice to see them face off because mm-hmm. they're so in sync with each other when he comes on as more. Yep. So it's just really cool, I think. It, it reminds me a lot of um, when we got to see Seth in uh, Funeral at 50 Mile yes, before yes, he was yes, Seth. Yes. And it's like, it's just neat to get to see those actors in a, as a different character, right? Right. And how, how clear it is how good the chemistry is already, even before they're cast in their most like recognizable role. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am not a fan of Funeral at 50 Mile, and the guys in that are pretty awful, but... This one, like Ron Masak's character is just like, he's funny and it's, and he and Jessica definitely have chemistry even as antagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we also talk about the women? The other we women? Can. Because in addition to Dorothy Lamour, we have Patty McCormick who plays the dead guy's wife. And, mm-hmm. um, Patty McCormick will come back in season five for the Cagney and Lacey ripoff episode. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be really fun. I just like her. I think she's very pretty, although she 
plays a not nice lady in this. And then we have um, Kate Vernon as the secretary. And I have to tell you, like, I'm watching her do her secretarial job in this episode. And I just think, wow, I should have been a secretary. Like, she just, like, sits and paints her nails and, like, doesn't really have to do anything. That is the the stereotype of the office secretary there, right? No, not anymore. Like, have you ever been a... Re- uh, now it's a receptionist, right? Like... I said that's the stereotype. Not oh, that's yeah, reality. yeah. But I mean, I think probably in the pre-computer age, you could do shit like that, right? But like... Right. I don't know. When I was a receptionist and when I've tempt, like, you're told to constantly look like you're busy and, like, be typing things and having spreadsheets pulled up on your computer, even if you're not actually working. It's like... It's just kind of nice. Like, she's just, like, painting her nails and is, like... I mean, having worked in a, like, dead-end, like, not a receptionist job, but, you know, customer service, a lot of it is just looking busy. Looking busy, right. That is 90% (laughs) of most jobs. I feel like they told her, just look pretty. So she's like, oh, I better paint my nails. Well, this is the 80s, so, you know, that's kind of the secretary's job is to look pretty. Look pretty. For the suits on Wall Street. She just seems so quintessentially late 80s here. And uh, her hair, Uh her... Makeup, the way she talks, it's it, there's like a sort of an edge to it that seems out of sync with the coziness of Murder, She Wrote to me. I know, yeah. Like maybe she's like too sexy or something. So I guess we could talk about the murder as we're closing in on like, you know, the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we make of the? I mean, I guess all of this, you know, the motivations and all that stuff seems pretty clear cut, you know, business, cutthroat. Once in on the deal, all that yeah. stuff. What really struck me, though, was, like, the scene where he's, like, pursuing Jessica, like, gonna try to strangle her in yeah. the office. Like, I was like, dude, do you think you're gonna get away with this? Like... You always ask that question, though. Every time one of our perpetrators is confronted by Jessica and starts to turn on her, you're always like, wow, you're so dumb. Like, how? what's your plan? Well, I mean, because, yeah. I mean, well, in this case, Jessica does run a risk because she doesn't have her usual backup. Like, if it hadn't been for the person in the wall, she probably would have been. I mean, I'm also just like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that if it came down to it, Jessica could defend herself. Like, she's not just some harmless... She's not Miss Marple. Like, she's not frail. Mm-mm. Like, one can imagine someone actually getting away with you know, maybe throttling Miss Marple, but one can never just throttle well, Jessica Fletcher. There was that one time she was shoved down a flight of stairs. That was pretty intense. That was, yeah. But that was because they caught her by surprise then. Yeah. Also, she was somehow magically better, like, the next day. Exactly. Like, she's indestructible. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Fletcher, bionic woman. I mean, what I think is compelling about the murder, though, is that it all hinges on the idea of setting up a fake account. mm um, so we can divert money there and we like black- blackmailing clients who are committing tax fraud and then like rerouting the money into this shell corporation, which is a sort of quintessential 80s greed story. It is. Yeah. And I it's just nice to see Murder, She Wrote getting back to that. Like that was something you and I hammered on a lot in season one. We felt like season one was very opposed to that sort of Reagan era greed and materialism in a way. And, uh-huh. and it seems like this this really gets back to that same ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since it's grinding up Grady and the like, the sort of quintessential small town boy grinding him up in the gears of capitalism. Oh, I like that. That's a good, oh, that's a good phrase. Yeah, I mean, one um, of the lines the guy even says is, "Do you want to get rich or do you want to pay taxes?" Yeah, right. Like he literally I mean, says that to one of his clients. Like, I was like, "Well, some things haven't changed in the last thirty odd years, right?" <laughs> it's like, "Do you want to make movies or do you want to pay taxes?" <laughs> Sorry, do you want to make movies or do you want to get rich? Like, that's the, that's the new 
do you want to make movies or do you want to get rich? What do you mean? Well, well, I mean, in terms of like today's Hollywood studios, just sort of thinking about the strikes and all that stuff. But I, that's why I changed it to. Well, how? Do why make, are we? No, I want you to explain to me why those are opposites. Well, now that you, I don't know. Now that you've pushed me to it, I don't actually know if that makes any sense. But <laughs> it was just supposed to be funny and quippy, Bridget, not to be overanalyzed. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we also have like the um, the IRS is like investigating this guy, and he explains to Jessica at one point that like people who know other people have committed tax fraud. Can yes, that's right. Turn them in and get a, f- and you get an informant's fee. And Jessica, this is why I love Jessica Fletcher, you guys, because of course Jessica Fletcher pays taxes. She sees the social good in them, right? And of course she wants everyone to pay their taxes honestly. But when she finds out about this informant's fee, she's horrified and she's like, "You're encouraging people to rat mm-hmm. out their friends and family, and you give them rewards for that. Like that's gross." And it's just like an interesting bit of Jessica's character yeah, there too. Just- about how she's situated in this sort of mm-hmm. world of greed, right? Yes, indeed. I hate when I, like, I pick up the ball and I'm dribbling and then I think I'm passing it to you, but you don't take a shot. I don't have anything to contribute like that. That seems to be. And then sometimes you just let the ball fall or maybe pass it back to me and I'm like, oh, I thought we were going to score there. Nope. Okay. I got nothing. I've been watching a lot of soccer, so I'm... this is, you know, sports metaphors around my Yeah, because I mind. think about dribbling a lot with soccer. They do call it dribbling, I think. Well, you would know. You've been watching it more they... than I have, so. <laughs> I don't know. I Half of what I'm listening to is, like, completely beyond my... It's like an, a foreign language. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Okay, so, anyway, I guess that's all we need to say about this episode. Uh, is it a keeper, though? Let's leave. I, I do want to know that. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, Grady makes it worth it. Like, I think that Grady's presence always makes is always a win for me in all of his bumblingness i still find him very endearing maybe we should have a ranking of like grady episodes yeah we should you know like is this um because i keep going back to murder by appointment only Mm. the lila lee episode is this better than that i would say no just because i think that the murderer is so cold and like Mm -hmm. the monologue he gives was so great and we don't really have any of that kind of meat here but in terms of it feeling like a cutesy murder she wrote episode i think it like really does a great job and i would totally oh absolutely put this in my regular watching rotation absolutely me too yeah do you want to say any more about that no no because there's we've already covered it like we don't need to elaborate whenever we just said i literally just said what i thought about but you could for instance you could say like which grady episode you think it might compare to because i said one that i think it might compare to I literally don't, I don't know which one I would even compare it to because I don't know them right offhand, so. Okay. All right. So that would be a waste of time. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay, the end. <laughs> so, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. We'll see you next time. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.